Welcome to Edit Community Spotlight. Today's interview is between Edit Associate Director Lauren Beach and Intersex author and activist Hida Valoria. Hida is a writer, author, and vanguard intersex and non-binary activist who has spoken about intersex human rights at the United Nations and as a frequent television and radio guest for programs such as Oprah, Al Jazeera, 2020, NPR, and BBC. Hida has served as a consultant for organizations including Lambda Legal, the UN, and Williams Institute, and as an op-ed contributor for New Now Next, The Daily Beast, The Huffington Post, The Advocate, Miss, CNN.com, and more. Hida is also the founding director of Intersex Campaign for Equality and is the author of Born Both, An Intersex Life, a memoir that was nominated for the Lambda Literary Award for LGBTQ Nonfiction in 2018. Listen in as Hida and Lauren discuss definitions, history, and current advocacy happening in the intersex community. So I think we can just jump right in, and um, I'm going to ask the question, what is the definition of intersex? Well, the definition of intersex is one thing that the community um, agrees on pretty uniformly and has for decades since the movement began. Intersex people, intersex refers to people who are born with sex characteristics that are not that don't fit the standard definition of male or female. So I'm going to repeat that because people really struggle with understanding who we are even when they've heard the definition. So again, we are born this way, and I think that's a very important um, point to stress because with all the development around gender and gender identity issues, people often get confused and think that intersex is um, some kind of a psychological um, identity, you know, or a gender identity. And intersex really is just a word to refer to a variation of sex. I would say the simplest way to think of it is a third sex category. Um, and some people find that a radical position, but that is exactly why intersex people are still living in the shadows, is because our very identity is considered radical in light of a system which categorizes all humans as male or female. So, um, yeah, we are born basically sometimes with characteristics of both sexes, and these can be reproductive organs, um, ovotestes, uh, secondary sex characteristics, so someone who is biologically male in terms of having testes, um, and chromosomally male in terms of having XY chromosomes but might develop secondary sex characteristics that are considered feminine, such as small breasts, or, um, or might not have a typical, typically-sized penis, but a little smaller than typically-sized. And on the flip side, it can be someone who's biologically female to give birth, um, chromosomally female, like sex chromosomes. Um, and I say that chromosomally female in quotes. As I'll get into later, there's variations. There's people who are women and don't have XX chromosomes. Um, 
but are considered women. Um, so, but might have more higher levels of testosterone and have secondary sex characteristics that are more masculine, such as stronger muscles and you know, smaller breasts, smaller hips, um, larger than average sized genitals, um, such as a clitoris that's larger than average size and could even resemble a small penis. So really we are, you know, we're a blend of male and female characteristics or just something that is not typical, such as um, there's one variation named hypospadias where the people look typically male by all accounts, but their urethral opening is not in the standard center of the penis, so, but somewhere else. And that, to me, it's such a small variation, but it is still treated um, like a significant enough difference that often the babies with this variation are operated on. Um, and it has terrible results from a lot of the people I've spoken with um, and met over the years. Thank you very much for that answer. I think it will help people understand uh, what intersex means in a lot more depth and can think through what that might mean in people's lives, which is, I think, incredibly important. So I do want to add one more thing. Um, I mentioned that we can be a blend, but I really want people to understand that we have a large range of types of intersex. So intersex people can look typically male, typically female, or in between. Um, and it's just anything, intersex people or anyone who have some kind of sex characteristics, be it in your chromosomes, um, your genitals, or your reproductive organs, that are not what is typical for male or female. So one variation, for example, um, people look female, and they've all always historically been assigned female at birth because their bodies externally look female, but their chromosomes are XY, which signals the body to create um, testosterone. Typically, these uh, people would be male, but their bodies don't um, read, you could say, the testosterone. It's almost as if it weren't there. And so when they, you know, as they grow up and in utero, they don't develop male bodies. They actually develop typically female bodies. Their bodies basically default to female, and so that's why they are always raised female. In the past, before chromosome tests and all these things were available, um, no one would know, really. The only thing that would happen, because uh, these folks don't have ovaries either, and this is a variation called CAIS, complete androgen insensitivity syndrome. And so they basically, you could look at it as being internally male because they have XY chromosomes, which are typically male. If internal testes, you can't see them, they're inside the body. Um, so they can't have babies um, or they won't menstruate, but they look typically female, like more so than me, for example, typically female genitals, breasts, everything. Um, and there was a long-standing rumor that a lot of these folks were models, actually, because since there's no functional testosterone, which all, quote, regular women have some functional testosterone, 
Um, they're, they don't have acne, you know, uh, beautiful skin, all these characteristics which are um, kind of ideal for modeling. And just two years ago in 2017, in January 2017, a model did in fact come out as intersex who has this variation. So, you know, that just gives you a sense of the scope of um, how intersex people present in the world. You really can't tell who's intersex just by looking um, at us all the time. It's not always visually evident. I thank you again for explaining, to, to helping broaden the picture of what intersex means and who is intersex, the different types of variations that people who are intersex may have. I think that will be an, an important uh, learning moment for many of our listeners. In addition to the definition of the term intersex, I wanted to bring up another term that I think in recent years has become more controversial in intersex communities, which is DSD or sometimes you hear that as differences of sexual development or disorders of sexual development. And I was wondering if you could unpack that term a little bit, um, when it was created, how it was created, and what people in intersex politics might think of that term or communities might think of that term, both terms. Yeah, that is a big um, topic in our community, and I'm glad you brought it up. Um, so the term DSD was basically imposed on the intersex community in 2006, and it happened um, at, at a medical conference. And I'll just I'll keep it brief to say that you know the intersex movement is in many ways very similar to a lot of uh, the other communities uh, in the LGBTQIA community to to our movements. I'll say because I'm also lesbian, queer identified before I was, knew I was intersex. Um, and so, but one difference is I feel like we went backwards in a sense in that um, activism in the U.S. started in the 90s, basically the mid-90s. It started taking hold where we began to appear publicly. And I was one of those people. Um, Cheryl Chase, who's also known as Bola Rent, was another and we appeared on several um, things together, 2020, um, a couple of films and news programs, I don't remember. Um, but the original approach was very similar to the early gay and lesbian community, where it was like we were hermaphrodites with attitude. That was the name of the newsletter of the U.S. organization. And it was about basically claiming our difference and being proud about it. And what happened, however, is that essentially after a little over 10 years of activism, the same founder of the first intersex organization, it was the Intersex Society of North America, uh, known as ISNA, whose website still comes up because it was up early and it's early on the Google searches, um, they basically, the founder wrote a paper, co-authored a paper with two board members, and one is a historian, Alice Drager, who's not intersex, um, but has written about it a lot, and her husband, who is a physician, they were both on the board at that time, and the three of them co-authored a paper and presented it at the Chicago Conference on Intersex Disorders. Now, that was the name of the conference, so it 
that the medical association was already using this term for us loosely. However, it wasn't an official diagnosis. Basically, intersex people before 2006, we were known either as intersex, um, sometimes as hermaphrodites, which personally I don't find um, insulting, but some people do. I can talk about that later. Um, that's just our older label, hermaphrodite, and it has roots in Greek mythology, which I think is actually pretty cool. But <laughs> anyway, um, but mainly we were known simply as people with different medical conditions, which all had different names, right? So if a baby was born, you know, the doctor, I mean, if they, you know, in the olden days, they did not disclose a lot of information to parents. But today, for example, the doctor would tell the parent, well, your child has uh, DAH, for example, congenital adrenal hyperplasia, another variation, which, uh, which often um, people who are pursuing and raise this female, uh, but it might they might masculinize more at puberty. So this is one variation. Um, and it wasn't, doctors didn't even really want to use the words intersex or hermaphrodite a lot because essentially they were always just kind of hoping that the child would end up more male or female, yeah. right out of the social belief that this would be the healthiest outcome. So it's like you have a boy with this and that and they need this treatment or that treatment always kind of hiding the existence of intersex variations in intersex people. Um, so with this kind of in mind, the, the you know, leader of the intersex movement at that time presented this paper at this conference and it called, it was called Changing the Nomenclature, and I forget the subtitle, and it literally said that all the old terms for people with atypical sex characteristics, right? That's the way to, to define us, which doesn't use any of these labels. But all the older terms, which were hermaphrodite and intersex, should be discarded in favor of disorders of sex development, or DSD. And this was kind of like, you know, giving candy to a toddler for the doctors, because if we are officially diagnosed as having a disorder, now it makes it much easier to get medical insurance coverage, you know, for the treatments that they want to give to us, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and to frame us in a way that, um, that implies that we need medical treatment, right? That's the first thing you think of when someone has a disorder. What do we do? How do we treat it? And so people globally... And I was in touch with some people around the world as, you know, doing this activism and wasn't too far into the Internet age yet, but still we had connected. And people were outraged, and I was outraged. I mean, we all felt like we were taking crazy pills. Like, why would you give the medical establishment, which has already been harming intersex babies, right, and treating us like we need to be fixed even when we're completely healthy physically, um, why would you give them this tool? Um, now, the belief was at the time, and this is what, you know, the proponents of the term argued for a decade, actually, until finally in 16 they started coming around. Um, and I had these arguments, like one was at a philosophy conference uh, in 2010 with an academic who had um, supported the term, Ellen Feeder, she has a book on intersex, 
and that we we had an argument in the middle of this conference because the, the idea was that you know parents wouldn't be comfortable accepting babies that were intersex this label was too fraught with associations of a third gender a third sex um too weird they would be more comfortable having a boy or a girl who just had a simple disorder and they felt that if they could get parents on board with this and get them more comfortable thinking about their child's body, you know, thinking about their intersex status with a different label, they could then accept their child and not subject them to non-consensual surgeries, right? So they thought that somehow it would be strategically advantageous to have this label instead of intersex. And I feel that the label caters to both homophobia and transphobia, as well as obviously interphobia, because it's a way to try to distance us from the very thing that we um, are so vulnerable, vulnerable to prejudice about, which is the fact that we are not typically male or female. Um, so instead of drawing attention to that, uh, the people who really advocated for this term were really trying to enforce a binary system, you know, or, or utilize it, you know. And, and I think they thought that maybe they could fool parents into thinking, okay, all intersex babies will grow up to be normal, boys or girls, don't worry about it, you just don't have to operate on them, but we'll be fine. Like, you know, our gender will be normal, don't worry about that. And I know firsthand that that's part of the approach because I was gender fluid at the time. Um, you know, when I discovered that I was intersex, it kind of set off a whole journey for me. And that's a lot of what my memoir, Born Both, is about, is about basically embracing that I have characteristics of both male, or female, male and female, and I feel very ma masculine and feminine. And today, I think we've all heard how a lot of younger people are really adopting this. You know, they're using they, them pronouns. They're saying that they're both or neither. Non-binary is the popular umbrella term, and I, I use it. I say I'm non-binary. But back in the, in the 90s, when I was first coming out, um, there were several intersex activists, including the leader of the American intersex movement, who did not like the fact that I was non-binary because, um, as they said, we don't want parents thinking their, little, their kids are going to want to be little girls one day and little boys the next. I was literally told that because in my media work, in my advocacy work, in my um, public appearances I would make, um, I would talk about feeling both. And I was honestly just being authentic and honest. And I felt like, okay, if, if people are really disturbed by the idea that someone's not really male or female or there's something else, then what better thing to do than to get them used to, you know, kind of desensitize to that and, and get them to meet people that are very actively neither and, and realize that we're actually quite normal in our own way, you know? Like, that's what I felt the movement really needed. And I 
feel like the movement still needs that. And the feedback I would get was tremendous because it would, it would make sense to folks, you know, um, that someone who is born neither male nor female might feel different. Um, but a lot of the activist community did not want to focus on that. And I think it's because most of the activism community, unlike me, have unfortunately been subjected to these horrible surgeries. And what that does, I call them horrible because, you know, the fact that they're non-consensual, the fact that they happen in childhood, in infancy, and often through childhood, it, um, it sends a very, very, very strong, deeply wounding psychological message that something is wrong with the recipient. So, you know, everyone that I've met, hundreds of activists over the years are just people, you know, who haven't become activists but are, are um, sharing their stories within the community. They all attest to the fact that, you know, they didn't know what was happening, but for whatever reason, their parents were taking them to the doctor, and the doctor would poke around down there. They're constantly having to spread their legs for these strange adults. Sometimes many medical students being brought in, you know, to learn from this unusual case, you know, from this unusual patient, and this is a child. So this is very, very, very psychologically and sexually invasive. Um, many of the cases have been called downright abusive, you know, the way that children um, are forced to be constantly paraded around as sexual um, curiosities, and so all of that sends deep wounds, and that is why I became an activist, um, you know, to, to work on ending that from my own unique perspective where I can say I was not subjected to that, and I feel so, so, so lucky. I actually, I feel blessed. It's the only real time I, I use that word. I mean, I think I, I am in general, but that is um, when I've most used that word because my experience is radically different from the intersex adults that I've met who were subjected to these um, practices. And I'm not saying that they're all miserable. You know, humans are incredibly resilient, as we know. Mm -hmm. People have overcome incredible trauma and abuse, as we know. But what I am saying is that I didn't have to experience um, a world of trauma and abuse and, and overcome a world of trauma and abuse that these folks did. Um, and I didn't grow up with negative feelings about my body. And I think that's something that people have a really hard time taking in. So I'm actually going to repeat it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I am someone who intersex. In other words, if I am nude, it becomes obvious that I am not typically male or female. I'm something in between. Um, I look kind of like the statues, the ancient Roman statues, like found all over ancient Rome of, of hermaphrodites, as they called them then. Um, and despite this, despite having a body which is visually something different, I grew up loving my body. It was healthy, it was strong, I was very athletic, I've always felt very comfortable in my body. 
and you know later on I liked the way it developed and some would say um, you know the medical lens would say because I was raised female and I, I do menstruate um, I have ovaries you could say in a way I'm more female you know um, than in between but um, that's sort of debatable it kind of depends how you you know define it all and look at it all but I have uh, some female characteristics that are you know, very typical like ovaries and so I was raised female and then you could argue that because I didn't develop large breasts or hips um, and it instead kind of muscular and athletic that I didn't develop you know in the ideal way that that young women should develop and then the females should develop but I loved it I didn't want large breasts I liked having an athletic very toned body and later on actually a lot of my friends were jealous because you know I didn't have to diet or work out as much to have the same kind of like you know swimsuit ready figure that that a lot of my female friends really struggled to maintain so you know I I think I'm a great example for how easy it can be actually to grow up in an intersex body and and not have it be an issue so you know so the people who created DSC I think had good intentions I guess but strategically I just always thought it was very very problematic yeah. um, but also kind of very indicative of the approach of American intersex activism, which was to very much try to work with the medical establishment. And in fact, you know, the language in the article at one point said, you know, we have to meet doctors where they are, you know, we should just use terminology they understand. Um, and I felt that like the early gay and lesbian movement, we should actually do the opposite. You know, we, <laughs> gays and lesbians were labeled a psycho, psychosocial disorder, and we did not take on that term, terminology, and in fact, we rejected it. And so this is finally, a decade later, um, an organization called Interact, which was originally called Institute for Intersex Children and the Law, and then it was Advocates for Informed Choice, and now it's Interact. They had supported the term um, very much so because they were very um, close to the founder of ISNA, the Intersex Society of North America, and they were involved with promoting disorders of sex development, and it was always kind of a rift um, within the community, within pockets of the community like myself, who were very much against that approach. But then the majority of the community who basically didn't want to lose community. You know, when, when ISNA said that they were using disorders of sex development, there was actually a post still up there on, on the organization's site. Why are we using disorders of sex development? And they explained why. And, you know, basically most of the American intersex community and and. I really do mean, well, I'm going to say 90%, mm -hmm. stood behind that. And I think they did it, even though many later say, oh, yeah, it didn't feel right. And I know it sounded weird, but they had this whole ex 
explanation for why we should go along with it. And I think, honestly, they just didn't want to be kind of, you know, they didn't want to leave the organization because they'd finally found community. And for me, I actually did get basically shoved out of a certain part of the American community because I stood against the term, because I wouldn't basically come on board and call myself a disorder. And, like, I was asked to sign a letter to, you know, send to Oprah for the one organization that was using it, and I just, you know, I looked at their website, and we were being called disorders all over it, and I couldn't support it. And I was like, you know, I would like to help you. I like your general goal of stopping surgeries on intersex babies, but I am not going to refer to myself as a disorder in order to help you achieve this. I was never disordered. I feel actually gifted, physically gifted, and I'm, I'm just not going to do it. But then this whole sector of people didn't want to deal with me, right? And so this is kind of, you know, when you do study civil rights movements and all sorts of, of movements of marginalized people, you do see these kinds of rifts, right, where some are very assimilationless and some are not, and I fall into the category of not. <laughs> and... Um, and so, but for years still, for years I was lobbying. In 2011, I lobbied Interact founder, who's now retired in ED, um, for about two hours as the chairperson of the organization Intersex International, which is the first international intersex organization, and I was voted in as chairperson, which is basically president or whatever you want to call it, the head. Um, in 2011, I believe it was, and, and was chairperson for six years. And so I was very connected with the global movement. Um, we had ch chapters, different branches all over, um, except for South America. But we had them in Africa, in Asia, in Europe. All the different people in other countries despise the term DSD and disorders of sex development. So I was coming back and lobbying um, the, the largest American intersex organization about not using this term because it was making it difficult. You know, we would be lobbying people. Um, we started, in fact, reaching out to the UN. I authored the letter, which all the global intersex organizations around the world signed in 2012 at a conference in Stockholm where we reached out to the UN Office of the High Commissioner of Human Rights um, for the first time um, making a global call for human rights for intersex people. And that was a big deal. But as we were doing this, it, it became strategically difficult, you know, that we're saying this is a human rights abuse, but then you had parts of the community still calling us disorder because, it, you know, it just it, it created inconsistency and conflict. And, and it, it kind of gave this perception of like, well, maybe some intersex people do want to be fixed, right? There was always that kind of question that people um, would say, I feel that it weakened the movement. And so I, you know, was continually pushing the American movement to drop the term. But what what happened, one of the reasons I think it took so long is it was introduced in 2006, and then a lot of the 
conservative org who catered more to parents of intersex people than actually the intersex people themselves um, or intersex adults. These folks started using DSD and they started using it with their kids. So you have a whole generation of intersex kids who were hearing themselves referred to as having a disorder from the time they were like, I don't know, some of them as young as elementary school, early elementary school, but most of them by the time they were 13 or, you know, in high school had heard themselves or their bodies referred to having as a disorder of sex development. And so, you know, they just kind of, I, I'll never forget, I, I was on Facebook, um, uh, which I don't do that much anymore, but I, I used it a lot in the beginning to connect to people. And someone posted, there are all these private intersex groups, and someone posted. I happened to, to get on, and someone had posted, I, I don't think I could make it tonight. Can anyone please call me? I'm feeling super suicidal. Mm-hmm. So I called immediately, and we ended up talking, you know, many times that night for about three hours. And, and she was 23. And she kept, I I just let her talk for a long time, you know, and during um, her initial kind of share with me, she kept referring to herself as disordered, and she kept referring to her body as disordered in a really, um, you know, painful way, and it was like, oh, I don't know what to do, and I just was disordered, and da-da-da-da, and just feeling terrible about herself, and after I let her for a while, I I asked finally at one point, I was like, I'm curious about why you keep calling yourself and calling, you know, referring to the intersex part of yourself as a disorder. And she's like, well, that's, that's what it is, right? That's what I've been hearing from my doctors for years. That's what my parents told me I have. That's what, what else is, like, what else is there? And she didn't know anything about the way that DSD was imposed on us, the way that we were not a medical disorder before 2006. Like, we literally were just considered people with different, you know, medical conditions like so many people have. Um, and and when I finally kind of went through it all with her and shared, you know, how painful it was for me to be coming out as intersex for a decade and then, la- and then have that label slapped on me, um, she stopped using it, and then in about six months, she was giving presentations at her graduate school. Wow. Um, uh, graduate, and yeah, and just completely turned around into embracing the intersex. She was like, and, and she shared, she's like, wow, I can't even believe how I, I just adopted it. It's like, it always felt bad, but I just thought that was the only term. You know, and so it it, kind of, it speaks to the power of labels, and it speaks to, you know, just how people ignore their own self perceptions in favor of what society tells them they they need to be doing, they should be doing, who society tells them they are, um, and so finally, after kind of years of the less assimilationist folks um, who were, you know. Activists, intersex activists like myself, 
pushing, and we're a small minority again in the United States, but the larger majority abroad um, also continuing to push um, American intersex activists to discard disorders of sex development. Finally, um, the organization Interact, um, who I mentioned was Advocates for Informed Choice, they put out a statement in 2016 that they will no longer use disorders of sex development and encourage everyone to use instead differences of sex development. And I just, you know, I couldn't have been happier that that finally, finally happened. I mean, I wish it happened sooner, mm-hmm. but better late than never. And I do still, however, um, I, I critique the positioning. For example, um, in 2014, there was a report by um, the American Gynecological Association. Um, no, the American Association of American Medical Colleges. It was an educational kind of, and maybe if you edit that, yeah, we can insert the actual. Can we do that? So, like, we can insert. There was a report by. And you can insert it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and in it, it was groundbreaking because it was the first, um, they call it the first manual for medical students to understand what should have been the LGBTQI community. However, they called it um, to understand lesbians, gays, bisexuals, transgender people, and people with disorders of sex development, people with DSDs. I think they just used the acronym. And I thought, why does every other community have um, their self-chosen social label? Right, that that affirms their movement and their community, and we are being called people with DSDs. Um, I actually wrote a whole um, article about it later that appeared in a medical journal called Narrative Inquiry and Bioethics, where I critique this and I critique how this is essentially what I see as the biggest flaw in in how intersex people are treated and in how certain branches of intersex activism have. Um, what strategies they've used. There is a strategy where we keep employing a medical lens to describe intersex people and intersex lives and intersex experience. And I, I find this maddening as someone who's studied civil rights movements, who's a member of many different marginalized communities, uh, the first identified as being the child of Latino immigrants, that impacted my life very negatively, much more negatively than being intersex in terms of the the prejudice and discrimination I was subjected to. But, you know, I'm like, how do you want medical treatment, non-consensual medical treatment to end when you keep framing being intersex as a medical issue? That's the part that I find maddening. Um, you know, it's kind of like, and if you look at it, the same thing could have happened to 
the gay and lesbian community and kind of had started happening, right, with it being labeled a psychosexual disorder within the DSM, you know, medical manual. And, and then the trans community as well, right? Like, that was also considered a psychological disorder, but both of those communities moved away from that framing um, in terms of their own community activism very, very strongly. They never framed themselves that way um, in their activism. And we, I should say, in our activism, because I'm part of those communities, um, because it would be dehumanizing, right? If, if a group of people is getting um, highly stigmatized and is subject to a lot of discrimination, you want to humanize them. You don't want to keep referring to them as some kind of a medical issue. And, you know, and in fact, this is the impact. I, I was at a conference, a LGBTQIA conference, and I met someone um, who had actually worked with HRC, and now it was with another organization I can't remember, but I was, you know, basically networking and, and educating about intersex issues. I'd given a presentation, and I was speaking to him, and after hearing about, you know, all the the non-consensual surgeries, I call them intersex genital mutilation, IGM, because I think they're similar to FGM. A lot of the surgeries are actually literally the same surgeries in terms of removing clitorises or reducing them in size. And then, um, you know, they're done to, to mutilate our genitals, to change our genitals into something else. And so, and they're done unconsensually. And so, after sharing about IGM, for a good 20 minutes and how harmful it is and how we really need support from the greater LGBT community and inclusion and, you know, how our issues are so similar, you know, we're operated on because it's assumed we're going to be queer in some way when we grow up, right? If we're born with these queer bodies, essentially, um, I, I view it that way at times. Um, he turns to me and he's like, but I don't understand, you know, isn't this a medical issue? Shouldn't you just be talking to doctors? You know, and it's like he couldn't get around the fact that there's something different going on with our bodies. And he wanted to just kind of lump it into medicine. And I think this is the blind spot that people have. But this is why activism needs to really, really work against it, which is finally happening, um, you know, in terms of once that org finally came around and said don't use disorders, you know, basically, like, their youth movement has been exploding with, you know, people in their 20s coming out proudly as intersex, saying I'm intersex, I don't have a disorder, and really confronting the medical establishment and just saying, you know, here I am. And with social media, it's so much easier, you know, to get um, coverage, you know, to, to be seen. And so there's really been a, a tremendous increase in visibility in the past two years for the intersex community. And I just could not be happier, um, especially after, you know, for so many years, I just kept doing things and I, I changed my entire work life so that I could, you know, just take off at a minute's notice because I felt like there were so few activists, activists out there and so few people who were willing to publicly be named.
theme, this intersects, that I just felt like I had to do it. You know, I had to keep doing it um, because somebody has to do it, you know, <laughs> if, if we're ever going to be, be um, included in society. No, I think that's... I feared all over the place on, on that one. No, that, I think that did a lot to contextualize, um, again, like putting, like naming experiences, naming history, naming the source and the stories behind some of these words um, is really powerful. And talking about, um, I think, especially the story, your own story, and how um, being intersex has been a positive thing and that your body is a positive thing is, is really important for people to hear. And I, I definitely agree with you about the big increase in visibility. It seems just a huge explosion tied directly into especially online media outlets that are targeting younger populations. Um, I think that's really important um, for moving forward and to carry forward some of the victories that have also been uh, occurring within intersex politics and movements. And one thing I wanted to get at more explicitly, I think we've been talking about it, or you've been t talking about it, um, in terms of different models and frameworks people use to inform the organizing work that they're doing. And I wondered if you could talk about, so we've talked about a critique of the medical model and pathologizing of um, calling intersex a disorder, for example, versus humanization of uh, intersex people and lives. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the alternatives to the medical model and how you approach things, the medical model, human rights, social justice, and how that has played into the history of your own work as uh, somebody who has been in deeply involved in intersex organizing and politics uh, for many years. Sure, yeah, I'd love to talk about different strategies. So, yeah, um, I, I covered what, you know, embracing the medical model and, and trying to work within it looks like. I think my view, and it, it's interesting, I it was always a human rights view, but I didn't start calling it that until about 2011. What it is is I think there's a way to confront discrimination head-on and and argue that mm -hmm. everyone who is behaving in a just, you know, non-violent manner should be seen equally despite whatever physical characteristics, um, ethnic, racial, etc., ability, sexual orientation, etc., that they are born with, mm -hmm. right? I just think it's it's that simple. We all have the right to live without, you know, violence, to live without being discriminated against in the workplace just simply based on our physical characteristics or our sexual orientation. Um, we all deserve to be treated equally, right? That's our human right. Um, and so strategically, I think that my intersex activism has always been very informed by growing up um, as a child of Latino immigrants who faced a lot of discrimination. Um, both my parents, my siblings, and myself, we all faced a lot of discrimination growing up, um, even in New York City. 
in the 70s. Um, and, you know, a lot of it is in my memoir, so I won't go on, but um, I was made fun of for two years in a row, told to go back to the jungle. Um, I knew it was because I had dark brown hair and dark brown eyes, and almost none of my classmates did. My parents didn't speak English. People were constantly harassing them whenever we'd go places. Is that English? You know, just being very, very rude, unwelcoming looks wherever we went. Um, I, I grew up with a very, very strong consciousness of what it's like to be mistreated and to be considered less than because of the physical characteristics you're born with. Yeah. And this is the perspective which most of the American intersex movement, um, especially the early movement that's changing now as the movement gets bigger, thankfully, but the movement was primarily white. And it did not have that perspective. In fact, there were a lot of people who were upper middle class, who were, in all other respects, privileged, right, who led privileged lives. And one of them, that the founder of the movement, said in a recent article for Human Rights Watch, uh, you know, we were naive. And I think, and, and she was referring to to the debacle with disorders, the sex development, and the label, and why she thought it would help, and ultimately didn't. Um, and and I think what it is is they weren't used to getting mistreated. So like they literally just thought, oh well, these doctors, you know, they made a mistake. And but when we inform them that these surgeries aren't helpful, they'll stop them. Of course, they'll listen to us and they'll stop them. And not getting, and I'm sitting over there going, do not understand that they're doing these surgeries because they think that you are innately inferior and you need to be fixed. Why are these surgeries called corrective surgeries, normalizing surgeries? You know, this is not about just a random surgery that went wrong. This is about an attempt to fix you and make you something else because of an enormously deep-seated belief that you are a flawed, inferior human being. And that's kind of putting it nicely, you know, in light of how the different ways that we've been treated and depicted and viewed. Um, and that was very clear to me, and because I'd already been treated that way as a Latinx person, right, all through my childhood. So, so it was very clear to me that what we needed to do was to create a community consciousness to find allies and to basically, like all other marginal communities have done over the years, to prove our worth and to prove that prejudice against us is wrong. You know, to call people out when they are treating us poorly just based on our physical characteristics. And, and so this is basically what I did, a lot of media activism. Um, I'm so happy. I feel so, so supported by the universe um, in my activism because I just kept getting offers to do more public media work, and I would uh, pray before every appearance um, just to be filled with, to deliver a message of equality, to to be able to to put a positive face on the community and help people see that we're just like everybody else. And and I feel that my prayers have been answered because that's the kind of feedback I've gotten and I you know, I and it's what I believe deeply 
in my heart that we are just like everyone else. We're just another type of, of person. Um, and so this was very different than like, you know, going to doctors and just trying to work within the medical establishment. I just felt like, honestly, to make an analogy, that that would be like the NAACP, you know, working only with the Ku Klux Klan and other hate groups. You know, I felt, honestly, that the medical establishment, not that, you know, all doctors are like KKK members or hate groups, but what I mean is that they were the establishment, which was literally harming us the most because they saw us as innately flawed. Right? So why go to them? And, oh, please treat us better. Right? I'm like, no, we have to just demand with allies and then in a human rights um, perspective, we have to demand equality because that's what's going on here. We're being treated inferior. And so this is, you know, it seems so obvious to say it that I almost can't believe that it took so long for um, American intersex activism to get on this page, but that, but it did. And I think, again, we have a challenge that other communities don't have, which is the majority of our members have been harmed at a very young age and have been taught that they're inferior um, in a really violating way at a very young age. And in addition, you know, because we could argue like I just pointed out, like I had that message at a young age as a Latinx person. But what I had and what every person of color has, which intersex people don't have, is I had parents who shared my experience, right? And so I could get at least familial support, um, even if the world at large seemed to be against me because of my ethnicity. But intersex people don't have that. Our parents are not typically intersex. You know, it's, it doesn't work that way where it's in every generation. Um, and so we don't have familial support, and we're getting that much message that we're inferior. And sometimes, you know, our own parents think it, right? And, and we're getting the message directly from them. And so, you know, in that way, we have that more in common with the LGBT community, right, who also don't have the familial support typically. Um, and so, you know, we're impacted very hard um, by different types of discrimination. And I think it's just made it harder for our movement to take off as, you know, as quickly as perhaps, you know, the trans movement has. But I think that we're going to witness in the next couple of years just a landslide in acceptance because I think that, you know, at the end of the day, once people meet us, they realize it's not a big deal. I think there really just needs to be more desensitization. I think it's kind of like we seem on paper to be, you know, this very different phenomenon people read about us in biology classes and it's like oh wow and I think you know I must have blocked it out because I, I know that we covered it a little bit but I don't remember when we learned about intersex people I think it's just it's usually taught in such a dehumanizing way that you don't even really literally think about actual people you might know being intersex is just like, oh, wow, weird. It's some hospital somewhere, you know, with blacked out eyes, like all those pictures. There's a, some weird 
person that has this bizarre body and I guess they just go live an isolated life, right? I think that's generally how people have been thinking about intersex people for ages. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm overjoyed that, that a lot of people are coming out now because it's going to change all that. Yeah. Um, along the, the, the note you just said about landslide victories that are quickly coming, I'm wondering if you can speak about some of the most exciting victories that have happened to date um, on behalf of intersex communities in politics, um, both in the U.S. and abroad. Is Any examples you might want to bring up as exciting for yes, forward movement? Yes, yes. Um, as I mentioned, starting in 2017, it was actually in May of 2017, when three former Surgeon Generals, um, the, the Jocelyn Elders and the two before her, U.S. Surgeon Generals, um, published a paper basically supporting everything that we've always asked for, saying that these surgeries are harmful, saying that they can mess with people both physically and psychologically and their sense of gender and calling for all doctors to delay doing any kinds of surgeries, medically unnecessary surgeries on intersex kids until they're old enough, you know, to request them themselves, whatever. So that happened. And then about six more organizations, and you can find this information at intersexequality.org. If you log on, there's like a learn section that has the statements and position papers of all these different medical associations, but it's positions for human rights. Um, I believe American Pediatrics, like a ton of different medical organizations have started supporting us. This is huge, 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 huge. Also, um, last October, I believe it was, um, California passed the first resolution calling for a ban on early non-consensual surgeries. Now, it's not a ban itself, so it's not a law which criminalizes these surgeries and bans them, but it is an official government statement urging doctors to do so, right? So it's called a resolution in legalese, and so it's a very powerful statement that was um, 110, Sacramento 110, um, in California was the Bill 110. And that happened on the heels of something else that's very exciting. So in 2015, on Intersex Awareness Day, which is celebrated October 26th every year to commemorate the first protest in Boston on October 26th, 96, um, against a medical clinic, the first intersex protest, um, on Intersex Awareness Day 2015, my colleague, Dana Zinn, who's an intersex Navy veteran and non-binary, uses they, them pronouns, um, they filed a groundbreaking lawsuit with Lambda Legal representing them to get a passport which accurately identifies them as intersex. They have, you know, they were raised male, given painful treatments, uh, eventually the pain led them to more medical, you know, treatments as adults, and then they ended up more female body and so tried living as female. Finally, and this is a path that many of us share, they realize that, you know what, I'm trying to fit myself into these boxes when in reality I was born intersex. I am neither. I'm intersex. And they 
um, after serving six tours to Beirut, you know, protecting our country, the government refuses to give them a passport because they won't lie and say they're male, male or female. They didn't need a passport um, while they were in the Navy, but they're retired, so they've never had one, and this is their attempt to, and they, they want to go. I um, Actually, Dana was supposed to represent our organization, the Intersection Campaign for Equality, at a conference in Mexico in 2014, which I could not attend, and they were not able to go. Next year, they want to go to New Zealand for another conference, global conference, and we'll see, hopefully, now... The district court judge in Colorado, where they, they live, ruled in Dana's favor, saying that the government has no, the State Department, no leg to stand on to not give them a passport, but it still hasn't happened, so we'll see. The State Department appealed. We will see how high up this goes. But what's amazing is this basically inspired different activists and people around the country on a state level where Oregon became the first state in 2016 to have a non-binary person, right? So the very next year, all these developments happened. Then it was California. An intersex person named Sarah Kelly Keenan became the first non-binary citizen to be recognized in California. Um, and then Sarah got the first intersex birth certificate ever issued by the United States. And this made headlines in January of 17. And so I'm not surprised. I think there's a very big connection between intersex people finally stepping out to say, this is actually our sex. We are a category of people. We are not just flawed or defective males or females. We are intersex. Our sex or gender, and as you've probably noticed, the words are, are very conflated, not just in social language, but in the law. You know, you, yeah. you get a gender reassignment, um, you know, legally when you could say, is it a sex reassignment? You know, it's, it's, they're very conflated. So. I'll say sex, gender, and I do this academically, sex slash gender. For us to say we are a different sex gender, that is who we are. Now, when doctors think about operating on us, they're not thinking about operating on a flawed boy or girl, right, who needs help to be a, a, an unflawed boy or girl, right? They just need this treatment. Now, it is rightly seen as an attempt to get rid of an entire gender of people, right? That, I think that's what the legal recognition of intersex people as a different category of gender provides. It provides a different lens, which is so necessary, you know, because in order to be, um, to have legal protection, you have to be categorized as a group of people. If you don't even exist really legally as a group of people, then, you know, there's no way to protect you. And that's basically where intersex people have been all these years, just falling into a shadowy category of, of people that can be subjected to all these treatments because, well, I don't know, inter we're harming intersex people. Who the hell are they? Like, we're not even accurately acknowledged. And so I think that's one of the most exciting things. Germany just... That I want to say three weeks ago became the first European country which is allowing people to 
both register their babies as intersex and adults can have their, their gender changed to the birth certificate as well as their legal IDs to a non-binary category. Um, so Germany's done it, Australia and New Zealand did it back in like 2012 actually. And I think this is huge in terms of spreading awareness of who we are. Ken and Kenya even is now calling for resolutions for intersex human rights, which is amazing. And um, that's happening currently. There was a piece about it right on BBC. And so, and, and that's amazing because, you know, Africa is the continent and a little bit in Asia, but where we hear reports about infanticide, where actually intersex babies are sometimes killed because it's considered kinder to the family to just have a baby, dead baby, than an intersex baby. It's so sad, and we saw the reports from activists there. And so for Kenya to be now calling for human rights is, is incredible. Um, and what else is a huge victory? I mean, I think all of those are really the big things I see, like the medical establishment starting to support us, um, being legally recognized. It, it's amazing. And also, as you pointed out, the presence on social media. You know, yeah. these days my work is veering more into art because I think it's one of the most powerful ways to reach the masses. And so we're seeing that more. You know, there was an intersex character on television. My memoir got covered in Rolling Stone and the New York Times and the Washington Post, which is such a gift, and also just for the visibility it brings, you know, to the community and to the experience. And so, yeah, I think that honestly, um, the intersex community, like I have, I, I'm a member of many communities, and the one that I'm happiest about in terms of the progress we're making right now is the intersex community because we actually are really, there has been a lot of progress. So for everyone who, for everyone who's wanting to um, think about how can we be allies and how can we help, what I want to share is that one way you can do that right away is to just include us and talk about us. You know, everyone's constantly saying male or female without bothering to include intersex people. Yep. And I think that's really problematic. Um, you know, it's just how are we going to achieve equality and inclusion and how are parents going to feel comfortable leaving their intersex babies as they are, right, and supporting them to grow up to possibly be, identify as intersex, right? Like, it's not like most people who are born male or female transition to something else, right? Like, there are many trans people, but there are many people who are not trans. And I feel like in the same way, intersex people, you know, if you leave us be, we may grow up to feel like we're intersex and not men or women. And so, and I've had a lot of parents thank me for putting myself out there as intersex in terms of my identity because they feel that it creates a space for their child who they have decided not to operate on. You know, like if this child indeed doesn't want to get surgeries to become more male or female, but just wants to be who they were born and remain as they were born, 
the more people are out there talking about the fact that, you know, intersex is a thing. It's a reality. It's a potential identity. It's the way to be in the world. The easier it will be for their child, right? It, it makes sense. It's just the same as what happened with the gay and lesbian movement, you know? Yep. That the adults paved way for youth later to feel comfortable coming out in high school. You know, first in college and in high school and you know, and things like queer proms now. That's what's basically going to happen. But we need, since we're such a small community, you know, we're about 1.7% of the population. That's not a tiny percentage. It's as, as common as red hair, but it's not gigantic either. And so we need support. We need people to acknowledge us. So I encourage everyone to never say male or female without also including intersex. You wouldn't do it about hair color, so why do we do it about such a significant characteristic, right? And and that's a, and if people really begin doing that, that alone will have a huge and revolutionary impact on the way that intersex people are welcomed and accepted in society. Thank you for listening. Learn more about our work by following us on Twitter at edit at N-U, E-D-I-T-A-T-N-U. And you can stay up to date with Hida by following at Hida Valoria. That's H-I-D-A-V-I-L-O-R-I-A on Twitter or visiting https colon slash slash Thank you.